Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week has been in the sports betting industry for over 14 years. He worked at Pinnacle as a senior trader for 10 years. He then worked to work as a head trader for Planetech for three years and is currently for the last five years running his own basketball live syndicate. Please welcome Antonino DeRosa. Ant, thanks for coming on. No, thank you for having me. I'm uh, excited. So, Ant, i like to start off with how's life growing up? Well, uh, unlike any of your other guests, I was never really around uh, sports or gambling. Uh, I was kind of uh, I was kind of a nerd, you know. I liked to play games. And uh, when I was a kid, my parents used to play cards with like all their old friends, and I would sit around and I would watch them play. And even at the age of eight or nine years old, I would notice a lot of mistakes they would make. So my only thing with gambling is I would love to play cards and watch people play cards and try to figure out, you know, the math behind it, if that makes any sense. But, uh, but yeah, my parents would play poker, you know, like nickels and dimes. And I would just sit there and watch as a kid. And that's how I got kind of got into the gaming part of it all. Beautiful. Where'd you grow up? Um, well, I was born in Italy. Uh, at the very young age of 10, we moved to, to Florida and, uh, my dad, uh, my dad felt that America is the place to be to raise a family and give kids an opportunity. So yeah, we make that move at around the age of ten or eleven. So math has always kind of been a thing for you. You know, you like to find out where the mistakes were and stuff. What did you wind up studying in school? So uh, I got a finance degree, uh, mostly because I didn't really kind of I didn't really know what I wanted to do with life. So a lot of times they tell you, you know, when you're, you know, go in the business side of, you know, college, and then you can see it from there. But uh, yeah, I have a finance degree, but I never really used it in my life. That's good, but that's a good basis to have. So, all right, <laughs> when do you graduate school? When did you get your finance uh, degree? So uh, I graduated college in 2003. Okay. Uh, around 1999, I started playing this card game professionally called Magic the Gathering, mm. if your listeners ever heard of it. Oh, yeah. And uh, I started like, you know, you don't really make that much money, you know, like some of the best Magic players were making $20,000, $30,000 a year. But as a kid or a college kid, <coughs> it was uh, decent money to be able to pay through school. So on weekends, I would travel all over the United States to go play in these tournaments. And then during the week, I would go back to college and, you know, be a student. Wow, that's so cool, man. So yeah. when did you realize you were good enough to, to, to actually go national on the Magic the Gathering? Obviously, there's local game stores. You probably were crushing the local tournaments, and you were always winning. When did you when Did somebody kind of needle you to say, hey, you should take this show on the road? No, the way it kind of works is you, you win a local tournament, then you get invited to a bigger tournament, mm. and you go to that. And then if you did well enough at that tournament, you get invited to the next one. So in about in around two, year 2000, I went, I qualified for, uh, you know, my second or third time I've been before, but it was never one after the other. And uh, something clicked. I just ended up getting better or understanding what was going on better. 
and I would go to a tournament and I would do well enough to qualify for the next one and then the next one and then the next one. And then four or five years later, I didn't never miss one. I was always doing well enough to qualify for the next one or my previous finishes added up to qualify for the next one. Wow. And then qualifying for these tournaments, that's money. You get money, right? Like to- Yeah. So it's not big money. You know, we're talking like just to qualify and you go there, you would get $500 to $1,000 enough to pay for your, you know, for your, for the tournament, uh, for, for the flight and stuff. But there was never like a buy-in or anything. So you just played in these tournaments that you qualified for free. And then based on how you did in these tournaments, you win more money in addition to it. So let's talk about Magic the Gathering. You know, that's uh, a lot of, uh, I know I know Pinnacle historically would hire a lot of Magic the Gathering guys. That was a big thing they would look at. And, you know, I play in a board gaming conventions and, you know, a lot of like, you know, incredible entities, business entities. I know there's guys that come to that convention that work for NASA, that work for the Department of Defense, that work for Wall Street. And a lot of these games, like they think, oh, no, this is all luck, you know. What percentage would you say is luck? What percentage is skill in these games? Well, with card games, obviously, there's the variance. It's still a deck of cards. Uh, but probably, you know, if you're a really good Magic player, you should win about 70% of the time. So over somebody with, sim, you know, like little less skills, but, you know, the luck does impact a bit. Um, the uh, It's funny, like, Pinnacle did hire a bunch of Magic players. That's how I kind of got into business. And we can talk about that about it a little bit later if you like. But uh, but there's actually a lot of skills that a lot of these games have that make you a good trader. Um, and uh, the biggest one, I think it's actually pattern recognition. Um, trading, it's all about pattern recognition, in my opinion. And uh, these games, you know, more you play, kind of like chess, right? It's all about knowing, you know, the different moves that somebody can do and trying to anticipate them. And always trying to keep the other person on their toes. You know, you don't want to be predictable. And the problem with, uh, you know, the thing that I don't like about trading right now is that most people who do trade, they don't actually take it as a game. You know, you kind of, they kind of always make the same moves. It's almost like an autopilot. They take a bet and they move the line from here to there. And in reality, when you're doing that, you're basically telling the better that when you when they make that bet, where you're going to do this, and uh, in reality, the best way to trade is probably when you do take a bet. Sometimes do the correct thing, but sometimes also do something that's slightly less correct because you don't want to always do the same thing. I don't know if that makes sense. But. No, hundred percent, hundred percent. Especially that, and I want to get into the because that's that's a very deep conversation I want to talk about when it comes to bookmaking and the art of bookmaking because it's an art. And it just takes years of experience. Um, just like betting, I think, is an art. They're both art forms. It's not, if you make it, like you said, a, a completely technical, just sign, a science where do this, do A, and if A, then B, and then if B, then C, um, you're, you're, you're leaving money on a table, I think, um, uh, for the most part. Okay, so you graduate school. Uh, when you get out of school, are you still now, are you a professional Magic the Gathering player? So I was looking for jobs, and at the time, uh, so... Magic is uh, made by a company called Wizards of the Coast. So I was, you know, I was doing that, uh, I was doing tournaments there at the time. I don't know if you remember, there's a baseball card company called Opera Deck, mm-hmm. uh, where people buy trading, uh, you know, trading cards of baseball players and baseball players. They decided to make it an entertainment uh, department. 
Basically, they wanted to also make games. So this company, Upper Deck, they decided to hire some magic players and some professionals of other card games to go work there. So uh, I got this phone call, or I think it either, it wasn't actually a phone call. They came to a magic tournament. They set up a little booth and they were like, hey, is anyone interested to come work for us? So I was right out of college and I was just like, oh, that's great. Let's, uh, let's see if I can get a job. And uh, I interviewed and uh, they liked me and they hired me. So from Florida, I picked up, got in a car, drove to California. And I worked at basically as a game designer for almost four years. And uh, we, um, the most popular game we worked on is Yu-Gi-Oh! I don't know if you ever heard of oh, it. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. That's, that's probably second to magic right now, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a game that's based on a cartoon. So the kids watch the cartoon and then they see the characters in the cartoon playing these cards and then they want to buy these packs. So, so yeah, so a bunch of us uh, moved to California and we were making these card games for kids. Uh, another one, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of World, World of Warcraft. Yeah. Uh, we made a uh, trading conversion uh, version of World of Warcraft which was actually a pretty popular game for a few years. Um, then obviously as the video game, if the video game uh, got less popular, then obviously the card game also gets less popular. But uh, but it was really fun. You know, I was just out there. I was, you know, in my early 20s, uh, just going to work and just playing games all day. That's amazing. So you were part of the team that initially designed Yu-Gi-Oh? No. By the time we got there, by the time we got there, the game was already made. But we would do is uh, the game was made for Japan people. So we would have to make it for Westerners. Gotcha. So we would change cards. We would uh, test the new cards. We would give suggestions to Konami because Konami is the company that actually made the game. So that's how it kind of all began. That is amazing. What a job. All you did is play games all day. Yeah. Basically, it was just we would sit in front of the computer, think of you know, card game like ideas, and then we would just test them out and see if it was fun. And how big was that team that you were? Uh, in? We had about about 10, 10 to twelve people. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot you know involved in that because you know we were also responsible of like writing the art descriptions for the cards. Oh yeah. Here's this card that we want to make that shoots fire. You know, we have to tell the artist what they're you know how to do it. Then we were also responsible of like writing the rules of this new card game. We were also responsible of all this other stuff that's, you know, making a card game. It's, uh, there's a lot of moving parts that I have to put together. Is there any one card that you could say that you had a big footprint on that is still used today in Yu-Gi-Oh? Not really. Not not really, but... uh, Are the cards uh, always forever changing? Like, are there are still some staple cards that have been used for the last 15, 20 years? Yeah, usually the way these games work is uh, is um, whenever the, the new cards come out, the, tur- oh. the tournaments, you're only allowed to play the cards that were recently made. Ah, that's right. Because okay. the ent- entry to barrier, like to get new players would be impossible. to Yes. Money on these cards that cost way too much money. And so, it also makes people have to buy new cards, obviously. And that, that too. Then, yeah. then, then the old cards need to become obsolete because you need people to buy new cards. Gotcha. Are there any tournaments where every, you could have a lifetime card? You could do whatever whatever they, card ever existed? They do have those type of tournaments. And uh, they're, not, they're very rare. Mm-hmm. 
they, they do have them. Same thing with same thing with Magic. Magic's been around since 1990 or 1994, 90, 93, something like that. And sometimes they do have these old tournaments where you can bring, you know, your really powerful cards that were first made at the beginning when the game, you know, was brand new. But some of these cards can cost up to twenty, thirty thousand dollars. Whoa! Yeah. So, so one they, card, so one card is thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. But if you yeah. have that card in your deck, it's pretty, and you draw it early, you know, at the right time, it's pretty much lights out. Yeah, pretty much. Like there's a card called Black Lotus and Magic. It's the most expensive card. Uh, based on the condition, it's worth you know thirty, forty thousand dollars. And if you do draw, you pretty much automatically win. <laughs> no, but how would you even put that in your like? You know what I mean? Thirty, based on the condition. So you, ha- in order to play with something like that, you got to have all your cards, not even just sleeved, probably like really, hey. really sleeved, right? Like yeah. double. Like yeah. I would- when I used to play back in the day, there was this thing where you shuffle your deck and you give it to your opponent, and then they shuffle their. You know, you, they shuffle your deck. Yeah. Uh, now. Like you have to be really careful with other people's cards because they're worth so much. But yeah, they're sleeve, double sleeve, hard sleeves. There's all kinds of stuff that people do to keep their cards in good conditions. But yeah, yeah damn, thirty thousand dollars. What's the most expensive Yu-Gi-Oh card? You, you would you say? I, I think know. it's. I think I don't know, but I think it's way more because Yu-Gi-Oh had some special cards where they only printed like one or two. And, and oh my god. And those are like super legal in these old tournaments. So those cards can even go, you know, to six figures. Um, yeah. This is but great. Yeah. But Magic, the most expensive card is around thirty, forty thousand dollars Amazing. That yeah. is so cool. All right. So how do you, how are you, how are we even having this conversation? Because you, how would you leave a business where all you're doing is just designing and playing games all day? It sounds like a fantasy job. <laughs> so, so. So I don't know how far to go back in the story, but basically one day I got a phone call from uh, Ted Knudsen, which, uh, you know, you guys know who he is. But he used to be, he used to also work in the magic world. He used to be a reporter for magic tournaments. So Pinnacle one day decided they wanted to hire, you know, a bunch of magic players to be their traders. So they just went down the list. They hired like the most famous magic player, then the second famous magic player, and like I got the phone call like seven or eight or nine deep, I don't remember. But they uh, Ted calls me and he's like, "Hey, there's a job opportunity to come to Curacao," and I was just like, "Curacao? Like I don't even know where that is." And um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just bought a house in California too, so and I really liked my job. And Ted is like, "Hey, just come, come for a visit, come for a week, you know, like we'll pay for your flight and your hotel, just come and hang out and see if we can convince you." And to be honest, the reason why I left was because I've, there was just more money. And at that age, you know, you're just, you know, I didn't even know what a sports bet was. I remember when I went to Curacao, my mother said, if they try to send you to collect money from somebody, please don't go. <laughs> <laughs> because there's this, you know, there's this conception that, you know, sports betting is bad or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, we just, uh, they hired a bunch of magic players. And I think the way it all started was uh, there used to be a guy who used to be a magic player who used to bet at Pinnacle and he was beating them for millions. And then Henry uh, reached out to this person and invited him to the island. And, uh, and then he brought this character around the office and uh, he's like, I want to understand how are you able to beat us for so much? You're our biggest winner. And the first thing he said to them after 
he started talking to some of the traders there. He said, well, you guys need smarter traders. And Henry said to him, where do I find them? And then this gentleman said, there's this game called Magic the Gathering. All the people that play are pretty sharp or pretty, you know, they're, they're outside the box thinkers and they're gamers. You should look into that. And that's how kind of I all started. I love it. What a great story. Yeah. So, okay. This is, this is so cool. So you go down there. How far into that week trip do you say, yep, this is for me? Do you know right away when you land? Because I know uh, people that used to live in Curacao, and they're like, shit, man, it's hard to find good food. It sucks. You know what I mean? I ain't heard a lot of stories. Yeah. I, I To be honest, uh, I actually like the island a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like going to the beach. I like, I, at that time, I like to go out and drink and, uh, you know, be, you know, go partying or whatever. What I really, what really sold me is that they, they were playing to hire 30 or 40 people just like me. So, you know, even though I didn't have a family there, I didn't have friends there, like I would go somewhere where I knew a lot of people who had the same type of interest as me. And what I really enjoyed was the part where after they were all done working, we would all go to dinner together and then we would talk about work which is like something that most people think that's crazy. Like, why would you want to talk about work outside of work? But when you're like super competitive person and you only want to get better at things, I just love that idea that all these people were there to like make each other better at this one job, at this one task. I love it. And uh, so to be honest, I didn't say yes right away, even though I was leaning yes. Then I got home, you know, I had to talk to my family, make sure they didn't think I was too crazy. I had to, uh, you know, and then eventually I just decided, I said, hey, man, I'm young, only young once. I can go to Curacao for a few years, then, you know, go back to game design or whatever. But uh, I never went back to game design. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. So you moved to Curacao. You're, you guys, so you say you guys after work, you go talk about work. Did you guys after work ever play Magic still? Were you guys still active? Uh, no, we all stopped playing the tour at the time. Some of us who were still qualified for events, we would sometimes go, but it was pretty clear to us that we had to quit because when is the busiest time of sports betting? The weekend and the magic tournaments were on the weekend. Gotcha. So, so they made it pretty clear, you know, if we wanted to go every once in a while, we could, but you know, we couldn't go often. Um, but uh, we would play Magic online and play Magic among ourselves for fun sometimes. Uh, but as uh, as we got more entrenched into sports betting, we spent more time, you know, talking and debating that. And, you know, and a lot of us were not into sports. So we kind of start getting into it. You know, we start playing basketball or soccer, uh, try to, you know, be a little more social, you know, and go out a bit more. You know, we all had we all had visions of finding, you know, a Dutch girl as our wife or, you know, any of that stuff. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Good. So this is cool. So this, you know, so, OK, so now you go into the Pinnacle office. Let's describe how it is, because, you know, Pinnacle, obviously, world renowned bookmaker. Describe how the office is. You said they hired when you started, you started at the same time as about 40 other new junior traders or how did that? Nah, nah they, they would hire like a couple every month. Gotcha. By the time I was around, I was about the tenth, the ninth or tenth hired, and uh, basically there's uh, there was this uh, place called the Holiday Beach Hotel. It's a uh, 
it, it's a it's a nice kind of beach resort right on the beach and the pinnacle had the whole second floor of it so we would go in and the trading floor was there as you walk in on the right there'd be like the tennis traders on the top there would be the american sports uh traders and then on the side it was soccer and like all the other european stuff and imagine this place where every computer has six monitors I didn't even know that you could have two monitors on one computer. <laughs> and uh, every computer right next to it, it was their own TV with whatever sporting event you want to watch. And, uh, and yeah, we would just, everybody would be at their own trading station, trading whatever it was assigned to them. But there was a lot of chit-chatting back and forth because a lot of us really had no idea what we were doing. So there was a lot of helping each other. There was a lot of questions. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of discussion, you know, I remember one of my very first few days and you guys would think this is crazy. They put me to do baseball totals. They, I barely know how to like use the system, let alone know what a baseball total is. And the first thing they tell me is the sevens worth 35, the eights worth 18, the nines worth 25. They told me the values of each baseball total, but in my mind, I didn't even know what that meant. And then I sat there, trying to trade or trying to guess me. And then every time I would move my line, Don Best stream would move. And then every other sports book would copy me. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm going to lose a lot of money today, but so is other people, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, they, they, they had this approach, which was really nice is that they wanted us to learn from ourselves. Yes. They can teach us the basics, but in reality, they just wanted us to come up with our own trading style and with our own ideas and our own, you know, things. And uh, what was nice is having this group of guys where none of us really knew what we were doing, but together we would figure out what the right thing was. Uh, that was really sweet is, you know, a lot of people don't get that type of, uh, uh, they, you know, a lot of people get thrown get thrown in front of a computer with some instructions or one person telling you what to do here. There was a debate every time somebody would ask a question on what the best move would be, you know? And you were alone doing the totals. Like they didn't have somebody helping you. They would just let you do a market all by yourself. I was doing them all by myself. So Stan, the uh, owner of uh, pinnacle was uh, at the time trading, I think baseball sides. And he says, you know, if you need help, you can ask me for help. Uh, but he was not in Curacao or I don't know where he was. And uh, so, you know, we could talk sometimes and sometimes he'd call me and tell me how he would do something different. But really, I had carte blanche. I could do whatever I want. And uh, they understood that at the beginning, we were going to lose that money. It's OK. But at the end of it all, it made us all better traders, in my opinion. How would you learn from your mistakes when you're doing something like that? So, look, what would the process be where, okay, would you obviously, you know, you don't want to look at results. Would somebody then maybe the next day say, or would Stanley or anybody else talk to you about, this is how I would do something? Like, did you have an after action meeting? Yeah. How would that work to learn? So, there's uh, a lot of things. Obviously, result is irrelevant. Uh, and something that you can calculate is actually how much equity a game has at the end of the day. Uh, that's actually a very good, you know, way to see if somebody did a good job or not. Uh, you know, and that's super easy. You just, you know, you've calculated the volume on both sides and what prices they got and what the average price was and how much you stand to win on one side versus the other. And uh, 
you know, obviously more equity you gain than others, you know, you're doing a better job. Um, but uh, yeah, sometimes Stan, obviously you have to also have a good system where they can actually look at the line history and see, you know, every single move I made and when the bets actually came in. And, you know, if, you know, because their system was pretty good, you got to see all the line moves, you got to see the order the bets came in, you can sort them in bets amounts, you can do all that kind of stuff. So Stan would sometimes come in and, you know, give you advice. But a lot of times I would just look at it myself. And I said, oh, I got this bet at plus 105. Could I, got, could I have gone at a plus 103 or plus 102? And I think in today's trading you know, world, nobody ever talks about that. Like if you can anticipate uh, your future, a future bet and just overcharge them one penny every single time, you'll make a sports book rich, you know, even richer than they are. And, uh, but so we would spend a lot of time ourselves just uh, analyzing or, you know, bringing somebody over that it's more experienced than me and asking them how they would have done the thing differently or whatever else. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. I think the bookmaker wants to write the bet at the cheapest price possible, get that information the cheapest way. And you, you don't want to have to over move unnecessarily. That's a great point. So you would go look at that and find out and you would look at theoretical holds, essentially, like you were saying, and see how much, you know, results mean nothing. It's all theoretical holds is what yeah. you're looking at. And did you notice in time that you were getting better and better by learning from your mistakes and, and or no? Oh, of course. And, uh, you know, obviously, if yesterday I wrote $100,000 in one game and I have an EV of 2% and the next day I have 2.2, I probably did something better on the same amount of volume, right? Mm-hmm. So, so obviously that's a good way. And also, like once again, let's go back to patterns. Sports betting is it's very similar every single day. You know, you have the same professionals banging out those lines at the same time every single day. So, you know, as long as you remember what happened the previous day, you know, you're like, okay, this account came in and bet. I moved this so much. And then this other account came in and bet. Let me try the next day to see if I can get one extra penny from the second bet. Mm. Or let me try two extra pennies. Then at some point, the second bet doesn't come anymore. Right. And then you're just like, okay, maybe I moved enough, but maybe I still want that bet to come. So let me go back a penny, you know? So there's all these things that, you know, Sports betting, I really think that it's it's all the same every day. Of course, the players change. Of course, like there'll be some seasons where some accounts disappear or they make new accounts, you know, whatever it is. But in reality, the markets move at the same exact day every day, you know, and uh, most of the same people are betting every day, you know, because they're doing that for a living. And, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, you can like remember all of that you can come up with good strategies to be able to earn the most for the sports book let's talk about charting and player profiling um you just mentioned you know this player would come in at the same time every day than another player how is the player profiling system a pinnacle and how did you guys utilize that and make it better even to help you just uh, find out those patterns so so there's obviously two things that matter when you're looking at a customer uh, the one, how much money they're actually winning and how much volume they're actually betting. And the other one is how much they're bidding the closing line by. Um, both of those things are, I think, are very important. People can argue that one thing is more important than the other. Uh, I don't know, to be honest, which one is more important. 
But there's, I can definitely say that there's people who have thousands of wagers that beat the closing line, but also are losing customers. That sounds, might sound crazy to you, but it, that does exist. And there's tons of people who win and don't have that big of a closing line value. So you kind of have to use both tools. The one thing that, that we did was uh, we, um, we tried to, uh, we had berserker classes, we used to call them. So we had classes for somebody who's sharp, but we also had subclasses meaning is this person betting because he's an arbitrage account or is this person betting because he's a handicapper or this person is betting because he likes to bet value when our number is the cheapest, you know, and all those things mean a different thing. Um, so, so the, um, we would try to come up with ways to figure out why these things mean different things. And here's another example. You could be an arbitrage better and you're betting in the middle of the day when nothing is happening. Your bet has also has way more meaning at that point than when you're betting when that bet comes in after I move the line because of a different customer, right? So here's a customer who, who, uh, who made two wagers in two different situations and they have completely different meanings. So just a blindly you know, blindly uh, gear or uh, profile. Classify, yeah. Classify customers is not the way to go because bets do have different meanings. And uh, so, yeah, so we tried a lot. The way we tried to improve it a lot was trying to identify when the bets actually mean different than, you know, the times they're betting. Beautiful. And so it's not just who's betting, but when are they betting? What situation? Because somebody's. How. And some of these are hybrid customers. Some people might be arbitrage, but they also might value bet. They might do this. So the hybrid ones, you you know, have to look at the how. What percentage would you say of all of the customers that you were writing were what you would call berserker accounts, um, were accounts that you had to look at? You know, like, you know, is it, uh, uh, I don't know, like in Pinnacle, it's obviously a higher percentage than in other sports books. You know, were there accounts that you just completely ignored? Um, and what percentage of accounts were those? Yeah, uh, so they um, a lot of a lot of sports books they profile sharp or non sharp. At Pinnacle, they had something even cooler where we had sharp, then we had recreational or bad, and then we had unknowns. Right. Mm. So, so the uh, the bad the ones that we already had profiled and we knew they weren't scary accounts. We obviously made them rec- You know, we, they were used to call big years. But you made them as like we would ignore them. Then they would have the other accounts of unknowns are usually customers where we didn't have enough data to actually know. So those guys we would pay more, we would pay a little more attention to because we were trying to figure out how to classify them, right? Hmm. Uh, but the percentage is actually a lot smaller than you would think. My guess is about two every six, seven wagers you know, big wagers that you actually have to, you know, you have to dig in more and try to think about more. But a lot of the bets that do come in, you know, it's it was a known quantity of what they were betting. With the unknown, again, I'm just, because this is, I mean, it's interesting to me. With the unknown class, how many bets on average did you need to look at to be able to put them in the appropriate bucket? Well, that's also a tricky situation mm. or a tricky question because, 
some people might tell you it might take hundreds of bats or thousands of bats, but sometimes you would know after a few bats. So it really depends what would happen after this person bet. You know, is the market moving at the same time? Uh, you know, it, does he actually have people following his steam? Uh, do, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, when I do, when he bets and I move the line, do arbitragers take the other side right away? You know, these are things that, you know, that all took it, took that consideration into, you know, the place. 100%. So there's no full, there's no, you know, one algorithm to tell it, but I'm just saying on average, how were you able to make that decision or was there a team that needed to consult on it to put somebody in the right basket or you could no. just do it? No, the way we did it was if you were in charge of the sport, you could you could uh, profile that customer in the sport you were in charge of. And on average, it would probably take me about a dozen bets to figure out, you know, if that person was harmless or if that person somebody we should worry about. All right, and, so and then sometimes we would like, let's say I was doing the NBA. That was one of the main sports I worked on. If I saw that this person also bet a lot of baseball, then I could go and talk to the person who was in charge of baseball and see what they thought of that person. Beautiful. Cross knowledge. Why not? Yeah. It's, it's perfect. Okay. Now here's another question. Let's just, is there, how often does somebody that was incorrectly deemed as harmless or maybe correctly, we don't know at the time, get flipped and you're like, oh shit, we need to start listening, watching him again. When does that, because you're pretty much ignoring him. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, sometimes we would relook at things. And uh, for instance, we had these nice reports where we could uh, do reports by month or by day or by week, whatever, to the most winners for a particular sport. And if one of these guys would pop up that we already put it in the ignore part, uh, you know, then we would revisit and we would try to reverse engineer back their bets and see, figure out like if they're actually, we were wrong or they gave their account to somebody else, whatever the case might be. The, uh, that's something that, something that was nice at Pinnacle is if you make a brand new account and you make a bet, you're automatically an auto move. So even when you were wrong, it's still like, you know, even if you're wrong, the line will still move a little bit. If you consider bad, you know, you really get into trouble when, when the customers are not on auto move and, uh, they change their patterns, you know, a square gives this account to a sharp mm. and the line isn't moving and they're betting three, four five times. That's a really, when you get in trouble. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe anybody would, would do something like that. That doesn't sound like <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So that's great, man. This is good stuff. I love it. I, 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 it's, it's interesting to hear it from your side of the counter on, on how this stuff happens, this type of profiling and to do this, this has to happen every single day. Now, you know, the way I would do it, that, that in and of itself is like its own job. Like how, you know, to be able to have to move lines in pro, you know, while the game is being bet throughout the day, and then to have to look at this profiling, how do you juggle all these balls? And like, there's a, that's a lot of juggling and, and there's both such important, roles such important tasks that have to be done correctly how does one person do those two tasks so so believe it or not there's a lot of downtime uh as we all know it's everybody any of your listeners who stare at a down best screen all day long they know in the middle of the afternoon nothing happens so we did a lot of that there's also a lot of downtime between uh once the epm games go 
before the 10 p.m. games go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of times that. But actually, as Pinnacle grew larger, they actually hired a, uh, you know, a business intelligence team that also helped us with that. So when I started there, we didn't have that. But then as the company grew and, you know, they hired more people, they actually had a team who would analyze customers and then they would try to help us. And then we would, you know, talk back and forth to each other. How is Ted as a boss? Uh, Ted's a good boss. Uh, he's a smart guy. Um, he has good intentions all the time. Obviously, you know, he's very successful now. He started his own company, uh, Stats Bomb. Uh, you know, he's a little hard when, you know, you mess up. Uh, but, you know, he's fair and he's a good man. And then when Ted left, uh, you were there when Marco was there? Or, or? Yeah, yeah, Marco. I, I, Marco was actually my my boss boss for way longer. Marco is also a very good guy, super smart, uh, you know, tough but fair. Fellow gamer also. He's, uh, he's actually a magic player. Magic guy, yeah. He was like the third or fourth guy who got hired in gotcha. that story. Uh but, uh, but yeah, obviously super smart guy. Sometimes my Italian and his German would kind of clash. Yeah. So one day, one day he says, the problem with your Italians is you speak to converse. Us Germans only speak to communicate. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but, That's... but, uh, but no, obviously these guys are super smart and a lot, you know, you learn a lot from them and, you know, I'm very thankful for the opportunities they've given me in the past. Awesome, man. Okay, so you're at Pinnacle pretty much 10 years. Like, yeah. from what years were you said to him? Uh, oh, so, when did you start? I started in 2008, and I ended in 2017. And um, when you were there, did you primarily do NBA, you said? Or was that? So, so, yeah, so basically uh, I did NBA mostly, most, and then I did a lot of live NBA. And then during the summer, they would give me some uh, baseball shifts. And uh, during football season, I was doing a lot of college football. But those are basically the three main sports. Now, how about soccer? Because you were at that, you started at the transition when the yeah. soccer department turned from like the sh- like nothing to like a massive entity. Yeah, and- that's actually, I was actually hired. When I was hired, I was told that I was going to be a soccer life trader. Um, and believe it or not, like I'm glad that I went to American sports because I actually think it made me a better trader, as in, as in, I, I feel that whenever don't like a sport, you kind of look at it, you know, in a, in a different light and in a better way. Uh, I, I actually think that if you're a trader and you love football, you're probably not that good of an NFL trader, you know, mm. but, uh, but yeah, I was supposed to be a soccer trader. And then Stan, uh, Stan was starting to have problems with his eyes uh, and he couldn't stare at, at a screen too long. And, you know, he was getting a little older so there was this opportunity. They needed somebody to help them and to work side by side with them. So they moved me right away to American sports. How does, you know, Stan, brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, one of the smartest guys I've ever met. Um, talk to me about Stan working side by side and getting that rub of experience. How awesome was that? So Stan, uh, Stan, obviously what's really good about Stan, he, uh, he knew where the money would come at a certain time of the day. Uh, so, you know, like what was very amazing to me is as I was sitting there with him, he would watch a game and he would say, okay, this game, we don't have to worry about it. Money will come later. This game, we have to overmove because money's not going to come later. And most of the times he was right. 
And these are things that you kind of only learn with experience, you know, like you can't really, you know, write a formula or something that tells you how to do it. Uh, and a really cool story that with Stan is something that I just would have never thought of. We were doing an NBA game and it was like, uh, it was like Toronto versus some other team. And all of a sudden, middle of the day when usually nothing happens, we get a $30,000 bet on the team versus Toronto. And, uh, like, to me, it was just a normal bet. Like, I would have just moved the line a little bit or whatever. But Stan is like, no, man, there's something fishy about this bet. So we start Googling the account holder's name. And it was a dentist from Toronto that actually made this wager. Not on Toronto, on the opposing team. So Stan is like, there's something funky happening. <laughs> so he quietly moves the line, you know, trying to, to write Toronto bets all day long. And then, like, an hour before post, it comes the news that uh, Chris Bosh, or the best player in Toronto at the time, was going to miss the game because his wisdom teeth pulled. Ah, <laughs> this is good. I love and, it. Uh, and uh, so those are the type of things, you know, uh, those are the type of things that, you know, Stan taught me. Like, another example was usually they, there used to be this time where every sharp customer would bet the under on Monday Night Football and it always hit. But you had to really be scared when a sharp at the over on Monday Night Football. Mm. You know, like all these little tidbits, stories that you really, you really never could quantify. He can teach you, you know, his experience on things like that, which we really need. I love it. How about Henry? Let's talk about Henry. How brilliant was Henry? Did you work side by side with him at all? Or I uh, actually never worked side by side by Henry, but because uh, by the time I got there. Henry had taken more of a role to being charge of all the smaller sports. Stan mm -hmm. was doing the American sports and Henry was doing the other side, but every single person that ever speaks about Henry, it just always says the nicest things about the guy. Uh, he would be in the office sometimes and he was just a pleasant dude, never raises his voice, always thank you. You welcome, you know, just, just a, just a peachy guy. Amazing. Man, what a great thing, man. What a, you know, to be a pinnacle for that long um, and to be able to share that story, I, it's, it's fascinating. I could listen to you talk about this all day long. Um, okay, so 2017, what makes you leave? What, what happens to cause uh, the exodus? To be honest, uh, I felt that I was not learning anything new. Mm -hmm. uh, I was doing the same things over and over, and uh, I felt that I'd gone too comfortable with... Uh, with, I just wasn't getting any new skills or anything like that. So I just got married, not, you know, about six months or seven months before that. And uh, I said to my wife, I, I feel too comfortable here. Uh, you know, the pay is good. There's no stress. And people think might be, might think I'm crazy. Uh, when they hear this, there's just no stress. The pay is good. We have a good life, but I feel like I'm not learning anything new. So I really want to try something new. So we just, uh, Put in my two weeks notice and left. Wow. Did you wind up marrying that dream Dutch girl you were talking about? Or? <laughs> no, I actually, funny story, in uh, uh, Pinnacle one day decided they were going to open an office in the Philippines. And uh, they would send traders there in three months at a time to go teach the traders in the Philippines on how to trade. So I actually met my wife while I was in the Philippines. I love it. Awesome. Good stuff, man. All right. So you leave Pinnacle. Do you have anything else? Did you get another offer from somewhere else? Anything, you know, what were you doing for, uh, for pay? So I left without really any, any else, anything really brewing. 
but I decided that I was going to, um, I was going to try and bet basketball live after I was done at Pinnacle. Uh, and this is the truth on a story in 10 years in the business at this time, I never made a wager in my life. Wow. I didn't even, I have never placed a single wager on anything. So, uh, so yeah, so I went back, uh, I went to Italy actually, because my wife still didn't have her green card. So we went back to Italy and, uh, I got together with some friends and we said, and I had some ideas out to be able to beat basketball live. Uh, and, uh, we got together and I tried teaching them my ideas and yeah, we started betting basketball live. That's what we did for the next six months or so. And you've been doing that ever since. Yeah, it's actually, uh, it's actually my, uh, at this point in my life, I make more money from basketball betting than actually working. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, it's still going strong. I do think that some of the edges that, that we had, you know, five, six years ago, uh, are kind of disappearing slowly, but I still think there's plenty more opportunities there. The thing that people don't understand is live sports is, um, it's a lot different than pregame, uh, in pregame, the market is way more mature and, uh, there's a lot more eyes on it. Once the game goes live, um, the game the game does have a higher vig. Most of the places you bet and lower limits. I do understand. You know, those are the the thing the reasons not to bet live sports. But in basketball, particularly, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of inefficiencies because a lot of the decisions are first of all a lot of companies just might have bad models, but the ones that do have good models, there's a lot of human human fiddling with the lines that actually creates a lot of opportunities. So in, in betting basketball live, uh, and, and if you don't want to answer these questions, because oh. the last thing I want to do is, is hurt your earn. Um, do you look at the, like, the pinnacle line or the, the, you know, is, is there a line that's sharper than most and are they all beatable in it for you? So pinnacle and, uh, uh, bet Chris are actually the sharpest lines. Uh, but I do think they're beatable as well. And the main reason why I think it's beatable and there's nothing that I'm just, you know, there's nothing that I'm giving away, but the main reason is because decisions are made by traders based on what happened five minutes ago in the game. So, so a timeout of a basketball game happens and they get bets on team A or team B. And then five minutes later, a new timeout happens and they'll make a line using the information of the bets that came prior, but it's a new game. It's not the same basketball game. Like those bets should have either been won or lost by the time the second new line comes up. But the second line comes up and that is a human who decides sometimes to make a line, whatever they decide to make it based on best they took five minutes ago. And that's the main reason why I think live sports are still beatable. You're telling me if the computer just did that, because aren't this aren't all the live lines essentially made by you know automatically these days? Like I know there's a human element that does the touch and feel. You're telling me that human element touch and feel actually hurts the number. Yeah, that's what I think. And I think the reason why being is because a lot of companies, what happens is they the trader themselves as some kind of uh, some kind of like uh, bias. 
some well, they have a bias, but they also by these companies they're said, hey, Ann, if you're doing the basketball live game, please don't ever lose more than three hundred thousand. All right, now I have this directive. When I win three hundred thousand, none of my bosses come and pat me in the back and say, "Good job, Ann." But when I lose three hundred thousand on a game, they will come and say, "Yo, we told you not to lose three hundred thousand dollars on the game." So now, what these traders are doing is based on the action, or based on them anticipating where the action is coming mm-hmm. is come during that break. They're putting skewed lines, and you can actually bet those. I love it. I love it. That's perfect. That's a lot of the reason why a lot of these bookmakers on these big games choose to lay off bets or choose to try to overmove because they have bosses they have to report to and they just don't want to hear that bad you know that that to be reprimanded yeah all right great so that's such great i'm, I'm congratulations on the success basketball live let's talk about planet tech um when, how, how long you know uh, why you're doing basketball live betting you also are working for planet tech discuss that and how you got that gig and how that's so, been going so some of my uh, friends at Pinnacle, they actually moved on to Planetech and uh, the opportunity came for uh, to get a job there. And like I told you before, I want to learn new things. So I decided to go work for them because I actually am very interested in learning new things and getting better at things. So, and it would be really cool to work for another company other than just Pinnacle, right? Especially one that's, uh, I think, just as respected within the community. So, so yeah, so I went to work for Planet Tech. Um, the job that they gave me was to move to Manila. Actually, I was working for a company called LiveBridge, which is, you know, a subsidiary of Planet Tech or whatever it's called. And uh, they, um, they, uh, they decided they wanted to open an office where, so in Costa Rica or, you know, but whenever it's uh, nighttime here in the States, um, you know, in this time, this part of the world, then there would still be people, you know, working in the middle of the night. So we opened uh, a trading floor there. When I got there, there was about eight people. And by the time I left, there was 60. And uh, we, uh, we basically did all the overnight babysitting of all American sports. Plus, we started trading Asian soccer live, Asian basketball live, tennis in that time zone, every single thing that a sports book should have during the time zone that wasn't the main time zone where the company stayed. Wow. The 60 to go from eight to 60, that's a big, massive thing. And, and, um, and man, for you, and and you helped guide that um, and take it to that level. So, yeah. So my job was basically to to hire the people, train them, uh, you know, teach them how to be traders and increase the company, you know, offerings, um, you know, we would do something like an extra 40,000 live games per year, just our office. Wow. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the, to be a successful sports book in this, in this day and age is you have to offer everything, you know, you have to offer every weird and live game, everything, because if a, if a customer wants to bet Korean baseball, and it's not on your website. They're just going to go somewhere else, right? Mm. So, you know, I know that I know that it's harder to run an operation like that when you have to offer everything. But it's kind of today's world. You have to 
that's how you compete with the Bet365s of the world. You know, you have to be, try to offer everything. Is there something or be devil's advocate on that? Is there something to be said on why offer something unless you're going to take a legitimate bet on it? Like, sure. Is it better to offer everything, but have 90% of the things you're offering, you're only taking a hundred bucks on is the juice worth the squeeze in that sense? Well, to be honest, uh, there's nothing we offer for a hundred dollars. Mm. Oh, you know, I think our smallest bet, some things might be 250, but 500 is most of our stuff. And, even some, you know, even some crappy things that you like, you know, Filipino basketball, we were even taking $2,000 a pop. I love it. Uh, so it really just, it just depends. But yeah, you're right. You know, if you're a girl for everything for $100, but that's how you keep the people engaged. That's how you, keep, you know, all the recreational matters. Gotcha. So two fifty. That's your that's your number that you think is the low. If, if you're not going to take two, because some people would say, you know, like the Grande model, for instance, you know, Grande, the late skip. He, unless he was taking a dime, he wasn't even bothering putting it up, and that's why he didn't put up much stuff. Yeah. Um, Circa is another one. They, you know, they're not really putting up that many things, just because you know why. If I'm not going to take a, a decent sized pop on it, is it worth it? Um, but I guess you're thinking two fifty five hundred is probably the cutoff. Yeah, I think in some of the smaller stuff, you know, if you're taking 250, 500s, okay, you know, and some of these games, like, you know, even at 200, $500 a pop, you're still getting, you know, $20,000, $30,000 in volume. Strong. So, that is strong. Wow. That's really good. And this is all um, because, well, you it's world, it's different when you're worldwide, you know what I mean? And you're, you know. Yeah. And also, also, you know, the Planet Tech has so many customers, uh, you know, so many, so many sports books that they, they offer their services to that, you know, their customer base is really large. So, so what made you leave Planet Tech? Uh, actually, uh, I, uh, to this oh. day, I, I, I still contract for them. Oh, okay. Uh, I work for their math team now. I don't do anything with trading. Uh, the reason why we left is because I want to leave the Philippines. I'm to the point in life where I wanted my kids to grow up in America and gotcha. not in this third world country. And uh, when I left, you know, the guys at Planet Tech were nice enough to say, hey, Ant, we really, you know, we really want you to stay on board. Let's find something else for you to do. Awesome. So, so yeah, so you know, my job is to, uh, I work with the math team, mostly helping them develop live models for, you know, for their customers. That is so cool, man. I love it. And, and Antonino, you've come such an what an incredible journey, man, for you to go from uh, a professional magic player to, work, to working at Pinnacle as a senior trader for 10 years, Planet Tech to currently running your own live NBA syndicate. This is uh, incredible, very impressive. And um, what uh, you really have seen it all and done it all in this business. Um, what do you see yourself in the future? What's next for Antonino De Rosa? So, so I'm actually, uh, I still, still hope to work for Planet Tech. I still work, hope to keep betting basketball, but I really, I'm really, um, you know, I'm not very known. I don't really do Twitter, but I'm really impressed with all, a lot of you guys, you know, you or, you know, uh, Rufus or Rapazola, all your guys are just, out there trying to educate the betters and uh you know trying to help where you can like that's the part that really maybe i want to start doing some of that uh but maybe more in the trading part of it because even uh you know i read a lot of things and even some of the people that come in your podcast 
you know, there are these legends on, you know, how you're supposed to trade, you know, you take a bet, you move the line. I kind of, I kind of don't think that's really the way trading should work. Uh, so I'm hoping that, you know, I'm hoping to educate maybe more on the trading part. Um, so let's start right now. Tell me what's wrong with taking or writing a bet and moving the number. Because I, th- I think that the trader's job is really not to take bets on both sides, believe it or not. I think the trader, I think the trader's job is only to take losing bets. So, so the idea that you're moving the line every time you take a bet and you're trying to always get two bets on, you know, equal sizing on both sides, that's just not really a trader's job. Um, so, so then another thing that I do think that trading is missing in today's world, even I was reading on Twitter, there was a, there was a post about Rufus uh, saying, great job, Circa, you know, I bet a thousand dollars by your limits for 2000. You guys called me and, you know, re-raised my limits or something. And, uh, and then uh, the one guy said, oh, you can always rebet. And Rufus goes, oh, I can't rebet when I'm moving 15 cents. You're moving 15 cents off my bet. And it got me thinking, like, I think that a lot of times that traders are too, too, like, too caught up on earning off the last bet. In reality, they should be thinking how to maximize profits. So if Rufus bets minus 110, you can basically take plus 110 on the other side and actually make the same bet that Rufus made every time you take a bet. And, uh, but traders in general, when Rufus bets minus 110, is they want to earn off of Rufus's bet. And, and I think that's just not the way trading should be done. What you're really trying to do is if Rufus is the best god in golf, you know, when he bets minus 110, you want to make the same wager as him. Now, if Rufus holds 5% in golf, I'm just making a number up. I have no idea. Now, you can actually take plus 115 and still be profitable every time mm-hmm. you bet, right? Um, and, and, yeah, there's just a lot of this, you know – uh, imagine, I'll make another example. Imagine, you know, you take a bet, you move the line and uh, nobody bets either side. Now the line could be okay because nobody's taking either side, but in reality, the line could be off another 10, 15 cents, right? So what a trader should be doing is after a while, nobody's nibbling on either side. Maybe you should move the line a little more on air and not really worry about earning off of the last bet. Because really the way, the thing we talked about at the beginning to maximize your your EV game is by finding the closing line as fast as possible. Mm. The way you find your closing line as fast as possible sometimes is because you have to lose off of the last bet. That's how you find it. Yes, great points. Great point. Question for you. What, because this is just when you were saying all these great points, what percentage of games is there sharp two-way action, in your opinion? Not many. <laughs> not, not, not many. Depends not many. In like, yeah, just, uh, obviously, it depends on the sport. Yeah. It depends on the sport. But it's possible in a college basketball game, it's all one-way action. Mm-hmm. In the baseball game, you'll have, you know, 
75% sharp action on one side versus 25% sharp on the other action is never... Which is still two-way, though. There's still two-way. I'm not saying 50-50. I'm talking yeah, about there's still two-way. There's still two-way. My, my, my guess is less than 20% where you really have a reasonable sharp action on both sides. This, now you, you just this, made a... Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I mean, go ahead. No, 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 no. This concept of, like, this, this fairyland world where we think we live and we say, oh, you know, just trade the trade a game for whatever limits you want and let anybody bet, you know, most of the times the sharps are going to line up and, and, you know, I'm not trying to pick on Circa because obviously they're a great sports book and what they're doing. I, I have tons of respect, for but when they went on Twitter, they say things like we welcome everybody's action. We actually want everyone's action. That is, in my opinion, a false statement. Yes, they will take everyone's action, but they would prefer not any sharp bag with them, you know, because every time a sharp wins money from you, it's money you're never getting back. Every time a, a square recreational lose, wins money from you, it's money you're getting back. So, yeah. so you have to have so many more recreational customers than sharp customers for that model to work. And I'm glad it's working for them. What percentage in Pinnacle or Planet Tech are recreational versus sharp? 95. What's the what's the ratio? 95, 90 to 95% is recreation. Even a pinnacle. Yeah. Of course that we let all the sharks bet, but there's so much volume. Like I don't know how much these sports books in Vegas get in volume. But when I uh, when I uh, there was a guy who came to Pinnacle who was very connected, who lives in Vegas, and how much we were getting bets. I was doing NBA totals that night. He says, I mean, I mean, how much did you get in bets uh, in these NBA totals? And I told him the amount of all my totals put together, how much in bets I got. And he said, you probably had 10 times more volume than all of Nevada. What's, what's the number? It was like a little over 2 million. On one game? On, on, no, no, no. On no, all no. totals together. On, on one night? On one night. And he says, he said, you know, you probably have five to ten times all that put together. Now, this was, you know, whatever, seven, eight, nine years ago. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's just, you know, you have to have lots of recreational betters, you know, to be able to have the Circa model, in my opinion. In any model. You know, yeah. I think Circa was going to say something like that publicly because what are they going to say? We only want dummy action. Nobody's going to say that. The PR team, yeah. they're going to, they want to say we want all welcome all sharps, of course, but and we, of course, welcome all suckers as well. <laughs> it's implied. But to say we welcome all sharps is something that's not everybody's going to say that. So that's oh. where you stand out marketing-wise. And you have they have to do that. And you can't blame them for that. Just like Pinnacle. Pinnacle, their slogan was winners welcome. Uh, you know what I mean? Of course, the, what you just said, Anthony, you know, how could you say that? Winners are really not welcome. We're still <laughs> going to take you, but we're yeah. not going to put a welcome mat out for you. <laughs> no, but Pinnacle's slogan is winners welcome. They're yeah. really not welcome, right? But of course, they have to. You have to say that because this way it brings even the suckers that are aspiring sharps that know that hey, maybe one day I might be good enough. They're not going to show me the door and kick me in the ass. That's the whole dream. You sell the dream of uh, of doing that. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, um, and it's a great point. One last thing you said that I think is interesting. Um, forget about earning on one bet. You know. A bookmaker will never move, let's just say, if they write a 20-cent line, a line is flat, pick a minus 10 both ways. A bookmaker, after writing a bet, 
I've never seen a bookmaker move to minus 35, come back 15. Where are you? Go ahead. You never, you never watched my lines, my lines hard enough. In, uh, in baseball totals, we had a guy, every time that we moved, we had a uh, minus 105 on both sides. Yeah. We used, I used to move 17 cents off his bet. Beautiful. So this is this is great. So, but I'm just saying, in all the profiling and what you've seen, and it's so different, I guess, when you're dealing a reduced juice model. But let's just say, and any any model, Chris or whoever it is, nobody's designed like the most they're going to move. They're never going to move more than twenty cents, right? Because that's in bad. That, I hear what you're saying. The mentality, though, is that how can I write a loss to the next bet? But you're saying is fuck it. If you know it's the shit. Who cares? Because obviously you don't want the same guy coming back and taking the plus 15. That's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's kind of maybe why you're protecting yourself. But at the same time, why isn't that people are like, fuck it. Let's just move, you know, 20. Let's go from minus 10 to minus 35, come back 15. Because we're then we're clo- we're getting closer to the right number. Where let's just say a Chris will only move to minus a quarter, minus 27, I think might be the most will move. Come back plus 07. Why wouldn't they move to minus 35? 35. Is it because of that mentality that you just said? It's that old mentality that, that you try to, you must earn off of the last bet. And I think it's very antiquated and just bad. You know, like the idea, the idea is if you have somebody who beats the line by 17 cents or 25 cents or somebody who holds that much money, you know, they somebody who holds five or six percent, you know, on thousands of bets. You know, that means you can move the full big plus more. Agreed. And still be profitable, but nobody does it. And I don't understand why. I think it's fear of the same guy coming back. Fucking just taking money out of their pockets. I, it's yeah. funny you say that. Like, you know what I mean? But it, it's just hard. Because sometimes but, Pinnacle would do that, uh, or you know, in the way back in the day. And I would just bet, you know, I would say, fuck you. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, uh, and, and it's possible that you start sending fake. It's possible that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's possible that really your first bet is not the one you actually wanted, but your second bet is the one you wanted, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But, oh, yeah. but it's it's a game. Like I said at the very beginning, if you're always, obviously always moving that much every time is wrong, but you have to, you have to. Pick your spots. You have to treat it as a game. You have yeah. to, you know, like I'm trying to anticipate what this guy will do next time, you know? No, that's a great point. It's something. Because there definitely are some people worth moving more than what the VIG, and you take a loss on it, and who cares? It's just one oh. bet. You're going to be writing so many more bets at the better price for the house. But, but here's the thing. I'll give you another example. Go. You bet at minus 110, and then you take a bet on the other side at plus 105, you're not even earning that much money for the company. Exactly. Like these people, like like if, if that's really how much you're earning off of two bets – like that's not even enough to pay any of like the costs as these sports books endure. That's a good point. So, so really, so really whenever somebody's, so if you're moving 15 cents on a 20 cents line, you're basically giving up the idea of earning. You're saying this person should be respected. I'm going to move, but they still are a little shy. They should have moved a little more because in reality, most likely what's going to happen, you're going to get another bet on the same side. Exactly. And you're going to get to the number, at, you know, like way later and your equity at the end of the game when the game ends will be worse. 
You know? And especially in the life cycle of a line when your limits are lower early on, that's obviously you should be so much more aggressive. But mm-hmm. I'm telling you, it's so rare, even till they anybody auto moving, anybody, it's rare you see, unless it's an injury or something like that, it's rare you see somebody booking a sharp a sharp bet and moving more than 20 cents where they're actually taking a loss. It's not in the algorithms. And for some reason, it should be, like you said, especially when you're writing lower limits. As the line gets more mature and as, as, as the limits start increasing, then that's probably, you know, that should be adjusted yeah. according oh, to the time, oh, the oh, life oh. cycle of the line. Of course, I'm not predicating we should do this 20 minutes to post. Yes. But early in the morning, there's plenty of times where you should. Open. Absolutely. Antonino, but. you, this is, I love talking this. I could talk about this shit all day. The, philo- the philosophy about line movement and what should be done and what shouldn't. It's my favorite topic. I'm really excited. And to talk with somebody like you who's seen it all, done it all, it's amazing. Before we close, Antonio, the name of the podcast is called Be Better Betters. Um, you haven't placed a bet the whole time at Pinnacle. Um, that's amazing. How, how, were you the only guy that did not place a bet while working at Pinnacle, or there were others like you? All the Magic players never placed any bets. Unbelievable. We just never had that idea to even make – like, first we thought it was kind of wrong, but then we just never did. Unbelievable. Me and Chinese Mike actually put a this uh, put a thing out there when we hire people that you can't bet. And half of the people that try to come in and work for us, they they, they leave because they said, no, I can't give it up. Um, so we make that a thing where you guys, I don't know if Pinnacle even said that you can't bet. Did they say they did. that? Or they they did. didn't. And you no. guys didn't. We need to start looking at Magic the Gathering tournaments. Um, I think this is what we should be doing. We don't, I appreciate it. If there's one thing I got out of this, that's a big thing. I think uh, we, we're 20 years uh, behind the eight ball, but I think it's better late than never. But let me get back to it. The name of the podcast, Anthony, Be Better Betters. You've, um, you're obviously running a live NBA, uh, betting live NBA syndicate. You've been successful both sides of the counter. One piece of advice you could give an aspiring better or even a better bookmaker, be better bookmakers. You just gave a great thing. Move a little bit harder. Who cares about right earning to every bet? What more advice can you give and, and share some of that knowledge that you got? Well, just uh, I'll give I'll do one for the better one for the sports book. Another move I hate the sports books do is when they're moving like only a couple of cents, because I feel that a lot of times when you make a couple of cents, you're asked, you're actually taking it away from earning the full amount, you know, because if you think the line should only move one or two cents, that's like almost like a no move. So like, you know, you would just, if you just hold still, you probably earned the full 20 cents. For the betters themselves, uh, the best advice I can give is that trust the market and like check your ego at the door. Uh, basically, the market really knows, you know, what the line should be. And, you know, there's millions of people out there who are betting, you know, with spreadsheets and weird computer languages. I don't even know how they, uh, you know, what they're called. And there's so many smart people out there that usually the market is very strong. So if you ever have a bet that has a huge edge or implied edge, it's probably a lot smaller than you think. So just, uh, you know, try to be cool with that. Respect the market, respect the market. Once you think, if you think you're smarter than the market, uh, you're a smart ass and um, you're going to get your ass handed to you. Great, great points. Antonino, Thank you so much uh, for coming on. It's been a, such a pleasure talking to you about this. I really appreciate it. You're a good man. Um, best of luck to you. And uh, if you're ever in the New York, New Jersey area, 
um, get, you know, the, the humidity down there in Florida gets a little nasty in the summertime. I know. Um, come on by. I'd love to take you out for a steak dinner, my man. All right, great. Where do you live in New Jersey? I'm in uh, I'm in Freehold. All right, yeah, cool. Freehold. Yeah, right by the track. Thanks, hey Antonio, you're my man. Thanks so much Thank for the you. time. Until next time.